this morning, we as a church collectively have extended a call to some men and their wives to serve as deacons, and I want to emphasize that they are serving together as a team. Uh, Deacon ministry, as you find in the New Testament, is a team ministry. Uh, If guys married, they serve alongside of their wife together in this capacity. The biblical basis for this is found in the book of Acts. And as the first century church began to expand, uh, there were some growth, growing pains. And, and so the church said, we need some additional leadership, servant leadership. And so the congregation selected, submitted names of men in the church to serve in this role. And as a result of this increased servant leadership base, uh, we see that the church uh, continued to stay healthy and was smooth, and the Bible says that the Lord continued to add members to the body. And so the first century church selected men not to exalt them, nor to give them titles, nor position, but to serve, just as we're going to emphasize today. And at the end of the message, we're going to gather around uh, these brothers and their wives, just as you see in the book of Acts, they gathered around them placed their hands upon them. I believe the church, the church is the one that called them and set them apart. And it was the church that I believe gathered around them, prayed for them, placed their hands upon them and affirmed them as they begin to step into these roles of serving as leaders. And so in preparation for this morning, I decided to speak on the subject and the importance of leadership. And I'd like to begin by providing you with a definition. What is leadership? How would you explain that? Well, my definition is is first a process. It is a process or the practice of influencing and inspiring others towards successfully achieving a goal or completing a mission. That's what leaders do. Leaders are dedicated to all of the things that I've just mentioned, to the process of inspiring and encouraging other people. They're clear on purpose, and that it is to reach a goal, a desired outcome. Our homes need leadership, amen? Moms and dads who are clear on their purpose in the home. Schools need leadership, those dedicated to inspiring students. Businesses need good leadership who have worthy goals. Our city, our state, our nation needs leadership. Those persons who serve to help others become successful. And certainly Christ's church needs leadership. Paul says to the Ephesians, and God's gifts to the church have been apostles and prophets and some evangelists and pastors and teachers. And I would add deacons to that list. And he goes on in Ephesians 4 and says, Why? He says that God raises up these servant leaders for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edification or the building up of the body of Christ. And I just, you just think about any area of this church or any church that has a strong ministry, any area of the church that is strong and vibrant, what you'll find is a person or several persons who have modeled and consistent and have been providing leadership. And so it's, it's so, so needed. 
Good leadership is a byproduct of good leaders. And so before reading our text this morning from John 13, I want to give you some characteristics of good leaders. I spent a little time thinking about this and writing some thoughts down. And so here is my top 10 list, if you will, of characteristics of good leaders. Number one, they possess a clear sense of purpose and help others discover the same thing, purpose. Second, they're teachable. They're not know-it-alls. They're lifelong learners. They have an open mind, and they often seek out the opinions of other people. Third, related to that, they're quick to listen. Good listeners, persons who are easy to confide in. Fourth, they're open and transparent in how they communicate with other people. Number five, they foster a learning spirit. Number six, willing to offer advice and counsel when it's appropriate. Number seven, they build trust. They're loyal and they make other people around them feel like they belong. Number eight, they're dependable and true to their word. Number nine, they insist on excellence. And ten, they have a positive attitude and treat other people with respect. Those are good leadership characteristics. Who is the most amazing leader that you've ever known? The most amazing leader who, that you've ever been around? I, I started thinking about that question and uh, started reflecting back on my own life. And positively, there have been many. Um, I think about my mom and my dad who influenced me. I, I think about a sixth grade teacher that I had growing up school. Her name was Mrs. Welch, and I know that you, that's real important to you. But, but that lady, I just, I just loved that teacher, and I knew that she loved and cared about me. She, she, could, she could probably get me to run through a wall. I just loved Mrs. Welch. Uh, two pastors that I grew up with, Curry Arborough, Dwight Blaine, a couple of guy brothers who, who influenced me and modeled some things for me. And over the last few years of my life, there were a couple of elders in my former church that were great, great blessings to me. More recently, there's a few brothers in this church who've been a blessing to my life. But by far, the top two have been my, my wife, Mindy, been a, a, a great blessing, and the other has been the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a difference he's made in my life and changed me. Jesus can, was an amazing, can you, can you think of any leader who was better than Jesus? Think about us sitting here today is the result of the ministry of Jesus. His work continues to go on. What an amazing leader. The greatest leader who has ever lived. And if you compare the leadership list and all of those qualities that I mentioned and you compared those to Jesus, you would find that he embodied them all. He prayerfully recruited and called others to be around. He cast vision about the kingdom and he was clear on goals and clear on the mission and was clear on what really matters. He was a teacher. He taught. He educated. He trained others. He inspired people and corrected them when they needed to be corrected and encouraged them when they needed to be encouraged. He, he loved people and held them accountable and stayed focused on the goals, the objective during the whole discipleship process. 
And I want to propose this morning that there was one main lesson that he continued to convey, one methodology that he needed for his disciples to grasp, one characteristic, a leadership trait, not valued in the first century and not really valued too much in the 21st century as well. Jesus said to these brothers, the world, the culture, places a premium value on those leaders who lord over other people. The culture values that. Those leaders who are forceful and demanding and controlling and those individuals who bark out orders to other people and they rule. They insist on their own way and are tough and direct and harsh. The culture values those kinds of leaders. But Jesus said, in my kingdom, the greatest leaders will be much different. Leaders in the kingdom will not be lords, but they'll be servants. His mission statement, Jesus, was found in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Do you know it? You'll know what I For the Son of Man came not to be what? To be served. It's his mission statement. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to the point of giving his life as a ransom for many. The final act or the final lesson that Jesus provides to his disciples is in our text. This was his final teaching session with his disciples, and it was perhaps the greatest lesson he ever provided to, for them uh, of what a true disciple, what a true follower of Jesus looks like. These men had to embrace this and had to become willing to be servants, to lay their lives down, not to be served but to serve. I invite you to read with me in John chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. But it's completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. 
for he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Father, would you bless your word? Would you give us ears to hear the voice of your Holy Spirit? And God, we pray that the impact of your word would be dramatic in our lives to be servants like our master, like our Lord, the Lord Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen. The Gospel of John falls into a couple of sections, two, two main sections. The first section of John's Gospel, first 12 verses, is really about Jesus' public ministry, uh, particularly on signs. John will continue to refer to signs, signs, and so uh, signs or miracles, astonishing things that Jesus taught, things that he did to draw attention to who he was. John 20, 30, and 31 really uh, summarizes the first section. It says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, more that are not recorded in this book, but these things have been recorded in order for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that through believing you may have and find life in him. And so these signs, public ministry, but then the second half, which we begin here in John chapter 3, the focus of John's gospel completely shifts from a public ministry to a very private ministry. For starting in chapter 13 through the end, through chapter 21, Jesus is primarily alone with his disciples. This is towards the end of his ministry. He's focusing on these brothers. Jesus knows that the hour of his glorification is at hand. And so he's getting these brothers ready. He's getting them ready. He's pouring into them. And so as we look at this text, if you have your Bible open, I would encourage you to keep it open. And I'd like for you to journey with me through the various scenes of this text. The first is in verse 1. It is Jesus' hour. Jesus' hour. Verse 1, it says, Jesus knew that this was his hour. His hour, a final hour. Time for him to depart, the Bible says, from this world to go back to his Father in heaven. Notice verse 3. It says he had come from God and now was going back to God. This hour was a specific reference to Jesus being glorified. He is about to be lifted up on a cross. And so Jesus gathers with his disciples alone with these 12 brothers all by themselves. And verse 1 adds, and he loved them. He loved them. He loved them to the end. He never stopped loving them. And in spite of the many blunders that they went through in this discipleship process, he never 
stop loving them. And Jesus knows something that they don't know. He knows that this will be the last time that he will be alone with them, all of them together. The last time to say anything together to them as a group. The last time to do anything, to share anything with them as a group. This was his hour. The second scene starts in verse 2. It's the meal. Jesus has gathered with these brothers to celebrate Passover, to remember how God had delivered them from Egypt, how God had heard their cries and God was moved with compassion. And so he intervened and he raised up a servant, a leader named Moses. And so God's people were instructed on an annual basis to gather and to remember the Passover, to remember and to give God thanks for the deliverance that he had provided. And so they were gathered at Passover, breaking bread, having this meal together, remembering and giving thanks to God. It's Jesus' hour. And probably about 15 to 18 hours after this time of being gathered with them, he would be crucified. And in the meantime, as they gathered and participated in this Passover meal, leads to the third scene, which is in verse 4. Jesus, after supper, took a towel and girded himself and begins to go around the room and to wash the disciples' feet. The washing of feet conveyed some things. First, it was a cultural act. It was something that was very common in the first century. It was really a way to be hospitable. If you had guests, people had sandals, there were dirt roads, it was dusty. And so it was a hospitable thing to wash the feet of your guests. But it was also an expression of something reserved for the most lowly, for the most undignified the washing of feet was something that successful people in that culture didn't do. They left that to their servants, the, the domestic help. It, and it was viewed as a very menial practice. And so why it was valued as a hospitable act, no one who was successful, who had any things going for them, would have been someone who washed other people's feet. That was a menial task. That was for the for the help. Thus, when Jesus washed their feet, it was a sign, a lesson. For he was modeling that he came not to be served, but to serve, to lay his life down on a cross voluntarily by choice in obedience to his Father's will. And he was sending a message to these brothers that they too are called to lay their lives down in service to God and to lay their lives down in service to others. This is the third scene, Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And when I really started thinking about this text and trying to picture that and, and envision what it must have been like in the room, this is insane to me. This is a bizarre, crazy picture. I want you to think for a moment who this is who is washing feet. Jesus, Jesus is not the hired help. Jesus is the Lord of creation. 
This is the one who spoke the universe into existence. This is the one who took on human flesh, born in human form, and all the while is still the sovereign Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of all creation, is stooping before these men, these disciples, to wash their feet. And it's an amazing, bizarre picture of God's grace demonstrating his love for them. Jesus humbles himself, he serves, and he does this menial task of washing feet. And with that in mind, can you think of any reason why you or any other follower of Jesus would have an excuse for not serving others? How can any true disciple of Jesus think that they are above serving other people? Are any of us too good to serve other people? Are any of us too important to serve people? Are any of us too busy? Are any of us better than others to serve? When the King of kings and the Lord of lords washes the feet of his disciples, how can you and I not be moved, inspired to humble ourselves and want to serve people? Instead of lording over people. Oh, but pride. But pride, how insidious pride is causing us to be more concerned about how we're viewed and what other people are going to think about us instead of how God views us and what God thinks of us. Several years ago, there was a seminary professor in my former church and He and his wife had just moved to Louisville from Minneapolis, Minnesota. He was a member of John Piper's church, actually was on the elder body there in the church. And they had come to Louisville and they had gone through the membership class of our church. And the following week, I noticed that his name was Tom Schreiner. And Tom Schreiner, I noticed the following week, wasn't in worship service. He nor Diane. and, um, And I saw him after service and I... Noticed he wasn't there, and so I got into a discussion with him, and immediately after he'd gone through this new membership class, here he is, this written books, one of the most preeminent New Testament scholars literally in the world, and he was serving in the nursery. Ph.D., New Testament scholar, serving in the nursery, and immediately I knew, I'm going to like this guy. (laughs) He and he and I have been friends ever since. The point is, none of us are above serving. None of us are above serving other people, nor is there anyone below being served by us. If you have your Bible, look at verse 2. Look at that verse. It's pretty fascinating. It's about Judas and supper being ended. The devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Judas has made the decision to sell Jesus out for money. For money. To betray him. And what's even more fascinating to me is, not only does Judas do that, but Jesus knows that he does. 
For the text says that Jesus already knows it. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, Jesus says at the end of verse 10, he says, you are not all clean. Not all of you. And verse 11 is a commentary to verse 10. For Jesus knew who it was who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you're not all clean. Jesus knows what Judas is about to do. He's going to sell him down the road for money. And yet, in this scene, in this picture, how many pairs of feet does Jesus wash? He washes 12. 12 pairs of feet. He knows that Judas is going to sell him out for money, and yet he humbles himself before this traitor and washes his feet. If you knew what Jesus knew, would you have washed Judas's feet? Or would you have thought that dog, what a dog. I don't even want to be in the same room with him. Well, I don't wash his feet, wash his own feet, go somewhere else. What a waste, what a jerk, what a traitor. Wash his feet. Fact is, none of us are above serving, and also no one is below below us being served. Fourth scene is Peter's objection. It gets better. Peter's objection. Peter, he watches. They're all in this room, all by themselves, have this Passover meal. Peter watches Jesus get up, puts the towel on, and maybe Peter was the last one in the room, the last one, the one. Jesus, Jesus goes in a circle around the room, kneeling before each brother and washes their feet, and Peter watches it. And I'm sure the room was quiet. Can you imagine? And Peter's mind is racing as Jesus gets closer and closer. And he becomes uncomfortable. Ugh. Verse 6. Lord, what are you doing? Jesus finally gets to Peter. What are you doing? Are you planning on washing my feet? In verse 7, Jesus says, well, yes, Peter, I am. And Jesus says to Peter, I know that you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but you'll understand it later. And look at verse 8, Peter's response. It's classic. It's typical Peter. <laughs> no way. No. You are not going to wash my feet. What's his issue? What's, what's Peter's issue? Why is he so uncomfortable? Why is he emphatic that Jesus is never going to wash his feet? I think it's because a couple of things. I think it's because Peter understands stands who Jesus is. You remember Caesarea Philippi, in order to draw out faith from these brothers, he said, what are people saying about me? What are you hearing? Who do people say that I am? And do you remember who was the spokesman? Peter, Matthew 16, he says, I know. You're the Christ, 
Son of the living God, my Savior and Lord. And Jesus commends him. Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own. But my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. And upon you, Peter, upon this confession, upon your recognition, your faith of who I am, I will build my church. And so I think Peter is reluctant to have Jesus wash his feet because he understands who Jesus is. But second, it's because Peter loves Jesus. Now he fails him. You remember when Jesus restores him in John 21? Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me more than all things? And yes, Lord, I love you. And I, I love that text because Jack preached on that a few weeks ago. But I, one of the things I love about that text, Jesus never asks Peter if he loves sheep. He said, do you love me? And as a result of his love for Jesus, he then says, now feed my sheep. Because it all has to flow out of first a love for Jesus. And Peter loves the Lord and he doesn't feel worthy. There's this genuine, sincere objection. No way do I want you to serve me and to wash my feet. And then we shift to the fifth scene, which is Jesus' response. Peter, Jesus says to Peter in verse 8, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You have no part. And Peter says, well, if that's the case, then Lord, start from the top, start from the bottom, from the bottom to the top, wash me from head to toe, from my feet to my head, and my hands as well. Just wash me all over then. But here's what Peter doesn't yet understand. You see, Jesus' washing of their feet was certainly a great act of humility, but that great of act of humble service that he him there washing their feet was foreshadowing something far greater than washing their feet. It was foreshadowing a much greater act of humility, a much greater act of service that was on the horizon for this was his final hour. Paul describes it well. He says, Jesus in the form of God thought not equality with God a thing to be grasped insisted upon, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave and being found in human form, he humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. Humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. You see, this humble act of service of Jesus washing the disciples' feet foreshadowed him humbling himself unto death on a cross. And Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, if you refuse this first humble act of service that I want to render to you, then you will not accept the most important act of service that you'll understand later. And so let me ask you, will you receive Jesus' act of service on your behalf? In other words, will you receive his sacrifice on the cross for your sins? Will you receive it by faith? Or are you like Peter and so many others who are proud, too proud to admit that you're a sinner, that you need forgiveness, that you need God's peace, too proud to receive God's grace and mercy? Or will you humble yourself today and receive Jesus? And as a way of responding by faith, would you surrender your life and service to him? Which leads to the final scene. 
in verses 12 through 17. After the meal, after washing the disciples' feet, Jesus asks them in verse 12, do you guys get it? Do you get it? Do you understand? Jesus knew if these 12 brothers did not get this right, if they failed to grasp this lesson, then they would never succeed at fulfilling their mission because the magnitude and the importance of that mission demanded leadership, servant leadership. And so here's the lesson. Verse 13, Jesus says, yes, I'm your teacher. I'm your Lord. And just in verse 14, just as I've washed your feet, I want you all to do the same thing. Specifically, wash one another feet. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that a servant is never greater than his master. And so here's the whole point. Jesus washing of the disciples' feet was a cultural way of demonstrating hospitality in the first century. Reserved for those of no regard. It was menial. It was looked down upon. And Jesus is telling his disciples now to wash their feet. To wash one another's feet. And for our context, it is a symbol of something far greater. All of Jesus' disciples, all of his followers are commanded to serve. That's the point. Jesus is calling us to follow him, and that call is one of dying to self and humbly serving other people, and it's to begin in our own homes. You want to serve Jesus? You want to get serious about really humbling yourself, dying to self, serving others? Start in your own family. Start in your home. I always thought about you know, my, my ministry, God called me to serve as a pastor. God called me to do, and that's part of my ministry. But I thought if there's any, any person that I want to serve and minister to, it's my own family, my own wife, my own kids. I want to start there. And then second, I want to carry that service forward to my church family. To serve, and I've discovered this desire to serve to is rooted in the gospel. This desire to serve like Jesus is never going to come from ourselves. It's rooted in the gospel. It's only as we begin to grasp who Jesus is and what he has done for us and the magnitude of his grace and that we taste that grace and experience that grace, it's only then that we'll be compelled to serve like Jesus. Do you have that desire to serve? To humble yourself and to give yourself away and serve people? Sometimes behind the scenes, without applause, without title, without recognition, just, just to humble yourself and serve. And the motivation it's not to get something back. The motivation is I'm compelled because of the grace of God and I'm compelled to serve because of God's call upon my life to please Jesus, to please him. I want to serve. And let me just say before we transition, let me just say 
and I'm saying this in love, I'm not trying to beat anybody up, there is no reason that we should not have nursery workers. There is, there is no reason for that. Listen, you get somebody else, I'll be glad to go back and hold babies and love on babies. What an awesome thing. Sing songs. I'm not good singing, but I'll sing songs about Jesus and hold babies. What, what, a, what a, an amazing honor. And to help families, to help moms, why would I not want to serve in the nursery? I'll ask the Dale next deacon me, and I'll ask if I can have maybe one Sunday off to go in the nursery. You, we'll talk about that. Sunday school teachers, backup teachers, parking lot attendants, deacons, youth workers, adult teachers to start new Sunday school classes so we can re- I, I don't I don't understand it. Well, I do understand it. After 35 years, I do understand it because a lot of us have got our focus in the wrong place and we started pursuing the things of this world and loving the things of the world, thinking that we're going to be for, more fulfilled doing some other thing like that than we are to have, a, to have impact, gospel impact of serving people. And it is not always going to be easy and it is not always going to be convenient, but following Jesus was never, never designed to be convenient or easy. Something about taking up a cross, that doesn't sound too easy or convenient. What a blessing to be able to serve the Lord by serving his people. Let me pray with you.